One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the ongoing COVID inquiry. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of the New Statesman and host of this podcast in the studio. And joining me down the line, I have Rachel Cunliffe, our associate political editor. And also speaking to us down the line, we're joined by our guest, Emma Norris, deputy director at the Institute for Government, who's been following the COVID inquiry from the start. Now, before we start, there will be some use of bad language in this episode, inevitably. Uh, So you may not want kids around while you're listening, just to warn This public inquiry began in June and is set to go on for a few years. So I'm just going to break that down before we get into the discussion. There's six modules. The first was resilience and preparedness. And we're now in core UK decision making and political governance. Um, And this one began in October and it was set to be the most controversial section, really, looking into the workings of central government during this time. And from the use of the term fuck pigs to Boris Johnson's query about blowing a hairdryer up his nose, this has rung true so far. Um, So, Emma, you've been following this from the start. Can you tell us sort of how this module is shaping up compared to what you've seen in previous hearings of the inquiry? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that this has been by far the most kind of controversial uh, of the modules. Well, there have only been two, but the first one was very much focused on kind of preparedness. And there were some kind of big moments um, in the first module. You had George Osborne, the former chancellor in, talking about whether things like austerity had affected, you know, the resilience of the country, our ability to respond to the pandemic. But I think it's fair to say there was nothing like what we have heard this week from advisors like Dominic Cummings. And so, you know, in this this module, as you say, we're focusing on political decision-making. We're really getting into the kind of heart power during the pandemic. Um, how were figures like Boris Johnson behaving? How high quality was their decision making? Was the civil service up to scratch? And how did figures like Cummings actually um, operate when they were uh, in the heart of power? Yeah, Rachel, what stuck out to you? Because it's sort of come across as a bit of a soap opera so far. People seem not to be holding back about the incompetence of their colleagues. Yeah, I think my main takeaway has been how this is simultaneously really shocking and the revelations that have come out about the language used and the chaos and the relationships within Downing Street and the cabinet office. But at the same time, it doesn't feel surprising. It seems to echo what kind of what it felt like living through the the, the, the pandemic and and newspaper articles going, we're going to do this, we're going to be in tears, no, we're going to be in bubbles, no, we're going to have these restrictions, we're not going to have those restrictions. I remember at the time feeling it doesn't seem like there's an overarching strategy. It all feels a little bit random. It feels like ministers and officials are kind of arguing amongst themselves and we, the public, 
are getting the briefing telling us what the what the rules of that day are. I think the rules changed on average more than once a week for the first year and a half of of the pandemic. And that's how it felt like. And then you 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 listen to the evidence and it turns out that is exactly what was going on, which in a way is validating of our collective memory of what happened, but in a much bigger way, I think is absolutely terrifying. Terrifying. And I also found it quite shocking. I mean, on the one hand, I totally agree. During the pandemic, it did feel a mess. It felt like decisions were changing constantly. It felt really difficult sometimes to even grasp what guidance you're being given about the choices you should make in your own life. On the other hand, I guess I wondered, maybe there is a plan, but actually when, you know, when it hits the fan, the plan goes out the window and everybody runs around in circles. But I think what we've seen this week really confirmed is no, there wasn't a plan, despite the fact that, you know, a pandemic had been at the top of our national risk register for years. When it came to it, no serious thinking had been done about what that would mean in practice, about the big decisions that we needed to already have worked through as a country. And I find it really shocking to actually hear that stated kind of so boldly um, by both the kind of political advisors and by the officials that we've seen this week. And do you think we've learnt anything new that we didn't know, Emma? I think a couple of things. I think the sheer level of kind of toxicity Mm. in the centre of government is something a bit new. I think we all knew the way Boris Johnson operated as Prime Minister was, you know, indecisive. He bounced from decision to decision. Obviously, we've heard that from Cummings a million times before. But I think the kind of language that we've seen used this week in WhatsApps is really shocking. And I think, you know, for all of those of us that work in workplaces, sometimes there are workplace disagreements, people have different, you know, opinions. But to see that level of unpleasantness at a point at which these are the people charged with deciding how we're going to respond to the greatest crisis the country had faced in decades. That's the workplace that they're operating in. It's the opposite of, you know, a a culture that's going to bring out the best in people. So I found that shocking. And I think that's something kind of new that we've learned. I think then some, some other things, the lack of any thinking about those who would need to shield people with vulnerabilities. You know, earlier in the inquiry evidence this week, was confirmed even when the government was pursuing a herd immunity strategy in the early months. They hadn't really done any thinking about what that would mean for some of the people who were most vulnerable to the virus. Pretty shocking to have that on the record. And as I say, just the lack of the lack of a plan, I don't think it was totally clear that there really wasn't anything there. Now we know. It's true. Yeah. And it, and it does validate some of the things that were assumed about um, the government sort of delaying locking down the changing of Boris Johnson's mind in particular, because we've heard how he, you know, was occasionally persuaded by this argument that old people should be sacrificed for the sake of young people keeping the economy going, Rachel. I think that's probably the kind of line that's going to cut through most to the general public who aren't sort of watching every twist and turn of the hearings. But they, you know, a lot of these clips are obviously trickling out and and confirm what many people felt about the government at the time. Yeah, I think that echoes uh, a line that we, we still don't have clarity on whether he said it or not, but he is alleged to have said in uh, winter of 2020, 2021, let the bodies pile high. And obviously he mm. denies saying that, but that line encapsulates what a lot of people feel the government attitude was at that point. And there are messages uh, where Boris Johnson seems to get a bit confused about statistics and 
suggest that COVID only kills older people. And therefore, I think he even at one point suggests that maybe given that the average age of someone dying from COVID is above the average life expectancy, maybe the virus lengthens your life, which is an absolutely bizarre thing to, to say. And I'm not sure he ever actually thought that, but there's a there's a misunderstanding of statistics, a misunderstanding of medical science and a callousness, a sort of flippant tone with which some of these really, really huge life or death on a mass scale decisions are being made. Um, I'm not that surprised. I mean, there's one of the most explosive claims like Boris Johnson saying, would it help to cure COVID if you blow a hairdryer up your nose, which obviously has been quite a lot of laughter about. Um, the thing is, I remember the early days of the pandemic and there were loads of things like that. There was stuff about bleach. I mean, Donald Trump was suggesting that people inject bleach into themselves, but there was stuff about how if you got an Amazon parcel, my, I, I know older family members who did this. If you got an Amazon parcel, you should leave it in your garden shed for a week before touching it because we didn't know. Could you catch it off of touching things like that? And there was a whole thing about can you catch COVID from petting a cat? And it all seems a bit bizarre now, but the level of fear and level of uncertainty at the time, I do understand how some of these myths arose. And I don't think it's that bizarre to have leading politicians go, hang on, I've seen this. Is there any scientific truth to it? No, there isn't. Okay, let's move on. The issue with Boris Johnson and the messages coming out of it is it doesn't seem like that was happening in any kind of systematic, structured way. Okay, we're having a meeting. Will any of this stuff work? No, it won't. Great, let's move on to the next thing. It seems very scattergun, very random that he just got an idea from a video off YouTube and then decided to to go with it. And as Dominic Cummings and others have said, seems to have agreed with whoever was the last person to speak to him what the correct strategy should be, which meant that we kind of veered from one to the other quite a lot over those those two years. Yeah, and it wasn't just Johnson, was it? I think Matt Hancock, who was health secretary at the time, has come in for a lot of criticism from Dominic Cummings, who's obviously said a lot about how he, what he makes of Matt Hancock before, and Helen McNamara as well, who was one of the most senior civil servants in Number Ten at that time, serving as the deputy cabinet secretary in the cabinet office. Um, I mean, Emma, is is there an issue here about the standard of ministers that we have? The Institute for Government is always looking at how to make government work better. Well, I think there are a couple of things there. I mean, one of the things that came out actually in earlier testimony in, in this module was the amount of churn that we'd seen at a political and official level. Guess I'll dumb all the former cabinet secretary in his testimony was saying that he thinks one of the real challenges, the real weak points um, for the performance of government was the fact that we had been through just so much change at a ministerial level. We had people in post who weren't experienced, who hadn't been in role for long. To be honest, the same, we know the same was true on an official level. We saw, you know, changes in cabinet secretary, changes in permanent secretary. And so I think there was a real problem of inexperience and people being new to briefs, then being asked to take on you know, this enormous challenge that even very experienced cabinet ministers and very experienced officials would have struggled with, let alone people have been subject to the kind of turnover and just the level of stress they'd already been through. They'd been mm. through planning for a no-deal Brexit. We just, you know, got through um, barely and then and then straight on to the pandemic. So I think that was that was one of the challenges. But look, I mean, there clearly are particular questions, I think, around Hancock. And it was really striking in the testimony that I watched from Helen yesterday, her kind of repeated setting out of Hancock, reassuring and reassuring and reassuring people in the centre of government. 
that there was a plan, um, that it was there, that he could work from it. And then the point at which they actually asked for it wasn't able to produce it. You know, what does that tell us about, about him as a minister and, and what trust could be placed in him? There was also mm. that really arresting image that got covered yesterday of her, you know, wanting to, I guess, support him and, and checking on how he was dealing with the enormous level of responsibility put on his shoulders. And, you know, his response was to say, to adopt a batsman's stance and say, they throw them at me and I, I knock them away. Um, so I think, you know, Hancock's what going to be up in a couple of weeks time and I will beginning of December. And I think uh, that is going to be very interesting testimony. After the break, we'll discuss the macho culture in number 10 and how it affected decision making. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. 
Mm. And it does constantly remind us, you know, when these people are giving evidence of the things we do already know, but, you know, are still shocking. So McNamara said she couldn't recall a single day when lockdown rules were obeyed in number 10. Okay, we know all about Partygate and those revelations, but just to have those things underlined in such a sombre official environment, you know, you know, people are speaking in terms of a judge-led inquiry, they have to tell the truth, is... I mean, it is, it's, it's quite depressing. It makes you outraged all over again. That's how I felt. And actually, I've noticed in recent weeks sort of travelling around following canvases around, for example, on the campaign trail, Partygate has come up a lot on the doorstep. And I think as journalists and as um, sort of policy wonks like yourself, Emma, we, you know, we move at a faster pace, don't we, when, we, when we're thinking and covering politics um, than the public. But I think these things have really stuck around and people are still outraged. And, and this this inquiry rolling on, and let's not forget Rishi Sunak's going to be in front of the inquiry before Christmas, we think, is just going to underline all of these quite hurtful things in the public's mind. Could have electoral consequences. Absolutely. And and just underlines the gap between the people who were making decisions and the people who were subject um, to, to those decisions. I thought, again, one of the really striking things in, in Helen McNamara's testimony yesterday was talking about the very early days of the pandemic, kind of January, February. And she was, you know, in various parent WhatsApp groups and could see that people wanted to know, when should we keep our kids off school? Should we be keeping them off if they have a cough or a cold? Or will I see my, you know, their grandmother or is that dangerous? And they were desperate for kind of guidance. People wanted to do the right thing and they just wanted advice from government. And, you know, Helen was describing being in meetings with the prime minister and other key advisors where they were just nowhere close to that, had no inkling of the kind of support that people needed kind of out there in real life. They were totally disconnected. And I think, that, yeah, that sense of disconnection between politicians and real people's lives is something that we're going to see play out throughout this inquiry and is clearly going to be a massive feature of the general election, not just in relation to this, but, you know, the kind of broader political context of cost of living crisis and, and so on. I've also been really struck in particular by the gender aspect of Helen McNamara's evidence. So she talked about uh, a culture of misogyny uh, and sort of the men. And she, she does point out that, you know, women can be macho too, but the, the men in particular being sort of very macho and being sort of heroic, Matt Hancock posing, you know, batting away all the issues and there being a lack of senior women in the room where decisions were taken and junior women being ignored. And we kind of knew all of that. And we have talked, aside from COVID, about the, the issue of lack of gender representation in politics and its sort of high levels of uh, officials and, and civil servants and, and what that means in practice. But you saw it so starkly with the pandemic that issues which shouldn't be seen as women's issues but are more likely to affect women than men just got ignored so what would the impact of school closures be on childcare if you've got two parent families who are now both expected to work from home i was involved in one of those families like that didn't seem to have crossed ministers minds that suddenly like you can't just sit a five-year-old in front of a computer for eight hours a day while mum and dad get on with work. And that's assuming that there is mum and dad. What about single mothers? What about the issues of domestic violence? It took them three weeks to come up with like a lockdown exemption for women who were facing domestic violence from their partners. And even when they did, that there wasn't like sufficient help and support available. One of the most, and it makes me angry just thinking about it now, one of the most cruel aspects of the lockdown was, I, I think, that pregnant women had to go to appointments and in some cases give birth or 
suffer miscarriages without their partners there because you know those are the rules and you've got stories heartbreaking stories of um fathers waiting in hospital car parks not knowing if their their wife or their baby how they're doing and these are the kind of things that like i feel like if you had had more input from a wider range of people you might have focused on those issues instead we had and, and Helen McNamara said this in her evidence you had more of an emphasis on well, what does it mean for the football what does it mean for grouse shooting was was one of them and like, women can be into football too but there is very much a sense that the people who are around the table when these issues are getting discussed impact what the policy is and I think the policies failed women and hearing somebody say that that we needed more diversity in that room I think that should be one of the key lessons that we try and take from this because let's not forget the point of this inquiry isn't just to throw around loads of blame on Dominic Cummings and Matt Hancock although they do deserve it it's to try and work out what can we learn from this so we can do it better next time exactly and I think that's the key point when we're talking about how it feels in the room and you're seeing you know the people sitting there holding up pictures of family members you're really reminded of course, you know, the way it's covered in the press is Dominic Cummings calling people fuck pigs. But what actually matters here is what are we learning that the inquiry can recommend changes? Because that's the whole purpose of this inquiry, right? That you come up with a series of recommendations. I mean, if we ever experience anything like this again, we do so much better. And whether it's making sure you have the right voices in the room, that you are thinking through what this means for victims of domestic violence, what this means for pregnant women, what this means for um, people with other vulnerabilities, that you're doing that work now. Um, and it feels like the big, the big challenge for the inquiry is turning all this information they're gathering into a series of recommendations that actually stick. And just lastly, Emma, maybe you can tell us, you know, these inquiries happen periodically and they give these recommendations based on what they hear how you know how often is it that they're taken on and absorbed into the government machine so sometimes they are and actually some of the big important changes that we've seen in all sorts of sectors relate to public inquiries something like say um enhanced crb checks the kind of checks we do on criminal records um people who might be working with young people um some of that comes from a public inquiry uh, the soam inquiry after a really horrific set of um child murders uh, some time ago now. So sometimes they lead to real change, but actually it's very ad hoc. And there are no formal rules or procedures around what happens to a set of recommendations that an inquiry comes to. It's, to be honest, pure luck whether or not they're implemented. It might be that they have a chair who, after the inquiry has completed, has the time and energy to act as an advocate for those and to really push for change. And you've seen that with some inquiries. Robert Francis, after mid-staffs, he did a huge amount of work to try and make sure those recommendations were, were implemented. But you can't expect that of most inquiry chairs. You know, they're often practicing judges who have to go back to their day jobs. And there's nothing, there is no rule that says government has to, has to put these into practice. And actually, I think it's a massive gap. You know, the amount of energy, resource, importance that we place on these inquiries means I think there should be some serious procedures around what happens next. And there are in some places, like uh, we're not the only country to have public inquiries. Um, in fact, most have something akin to it. In Australia, they've, they've had a few into, say, bushfires, and then they set up independent organisations in the wake of those to monitor how government and the public sector are responding. Um, Northern Ireland does something similar. They have just started charging their equivalent of the NAO and their audit office with tracking whether or not recommendations are being implemented. And so 
you know, I hope that the COVID inquiry recommendations are taken on and I'm sure that the inquiry are doing things to try and make that more likely. Things like interim reports are a really good sign, not waiting until the very end of an inquiry to tell government what you think. But um, we do need to see some bigger changes there. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And, um, you know, I, I hope you, you managed to survive the rest of the hearings and I'm sure we'll have you back on um, in future modules to come. Thanks, Emma. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, my colleague Rachel Cunliffe and our guest Emma Norris. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions on Keir Starmer's Middle East speech and the UK government's AI conference. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.